From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. In today's podcast, I'll be talking to Mike Spence. He's one of the world's most distinguished economists with a Nobel Prize in economics, no less. And I'd hasten to add that it actually isn't a requirement to have a Nobel Prize in order to join us on our podcast, even though we've been lucky to have several Nobel laureates uh, on with us. Uh, It's an extremely interesting time to talk to Mike with so much uncertainty right now about the trajectory of the global economy. And he touches on so many topics that are core areas of research for MGI, productivity, inequality, supply chains, and the future of work. Yes, and overlaid on all those aspects of economies is the extreme weather events that we've seen in many parts of the world, which Mike talks about a lot. Climate risk was the subject of a major MGI report just before the pandemic hit last year, and Mike was very keen to talk about that issue. I'm very much looking forward to Mike's insights. Over to you, Janet. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. You're obviously a very modest person, but I have to mention that you won the Nobel Prize for Economic Science, and therefore we think of you as an economist through and through. But I noticed that you did a philosophy degree to start off with, and then maths, and then economics. And I was intrigued by whether your philosophical background affected the way that you think about economics. Yeah, I think it does, actually. I had a a very influential course um, at Princeton, taught by the late Robert Nozick, it was called Social Philosophy. I mean, there were a number of influencing courses uh, for me, but that that one actually, you know, did affect not so much the sort of what I would call the sort of scientific side, if there is one, to economics, but the normative side. You know, whether you're thinking in terms of Rawls or John Stuart Mill or so on, I think the philosophical background actually did have an impact on me. And, and in what way, if I may ask? Well, one of the things I try to be careful about is, in my own mind, but also when I'm writing or even speaking, is to be clear whether I'm trying to be, you know, when I, when I use this term sci- scientific, Janet, I mean whether I'm, you know, d- trying to describe the way the world works as it works, as distinct from the way the one a person might hope the world works, which don't always coincide. And sometimes when people are speaking, they go back and forth between those two very quickly. And it confuses people, right? So because, you know, the the question of whether something is a good, you know, structural description of how the world works in this respect, it's in how the economy works, um, is a different thing than the normative statements about what things are right, what things are wrong, what policies you know are needed to sort of change direction and so on. So it being sensitized to to you know the normative statements and their underpinnings influenced me. I'm, and I'll say one other thing about it. People talk about growth all the time, but you know if you listen carefully, there's usually an unstated implicit model lying behind it or some framework. That, that they use to sort of think about how growth works. But the interesting thing is if you start trying to guess at what that model looks like, it frequently, you know, doesn't have anything to do much with reality. And it certainly varies a lot from person to person as well. Sure. And um, I'm speaking of reality. Um, we can't we can't not uh, have a conversation without talking about COVID-19. I, I guess you're in Italy, Mike. 
And were you there when the pandemic broke out and was so serious in northern Italy? Yeah, just barely. We were in New York on a sort of, you know, urgent mission to renew my my wife's uh, green card. And we flew back overnight on a Saturday, arriving on a Sunday morning. And four hours later, they closed the schools. Wow. <laughs> it's a crazy world out there. It's crazy. It it was pretty scary at the start because we didn't know what we were dealing with. And, uh, and uh, for whatever reason, I, I mean, I don't pretend to understand the epidemiology of this, but it, it the outbreak was really serious in the north here. I mean, looking back on it now, or, or we're, we're still in the middle of it, I read an article um, that you co-authored that said that in the United, the United States is spending 8,000 times more per capita than the least developed economies in the world, uh, which is quite an extraordinary figure. And back in April 2020, you were one of the signatories to a letter to the G20 leadership calling for immediate international action. And yet, it doesn't hasn't materialized. What, what's your feeling about that? Well, it's a very good question. I, you know, you for those of us who you know at least spend part of our time worrying about the people who live in the, the a broad range of developing countries and emerging economies, and it's a you know significant group. Um, we could see that the vaccine once it arrived was going to be the initial distribution was going to be heavily influenced by nationalism. I per- personally didn't think that was you know outrageous. I mean, our elected leaders, especially in a democracy, don't don't last very long if they don't look out first, you know, for the people who uh, elected them. And so, you know, I I knew that was inevitable. The, the 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 real issue was could we get that done quickly so that um, and ramp up supply and get rid of a, a host of potential obstacles so that the the second wave could be a massive vaccine program in the in the especially in the lower income developing countries because they were the ones at the end of the queue and that's what's not happened for a variety of reasons i mean people have different takes on it but roughly speaking key in in ingredients are the institutions that that you could think of as being involved in making it happen like covax you know like the un and so on they don't really have the clout to get it done Second, the developed con- economy, I learned this recently, the developed economies have optioned a huge amount of vaccine uh, manu- you know, uh, manufacturing going forward. And the latest estimate I heard is that we collectively, this is the US, the UK, Europe, and Canada, have optioned approximately 2 billion doses more than we could conceivably need if we if we vaccinated all children and did booster shots. And so I think what we're now hoping, and I've been at the periphery kind of, you know, involved in this, but I think to break through this impasse, you're gonna it's gonna take the leadership of the of the major players. So it's the G twenty, the United States and and the UK. And and you've also yeah, you've also talked about the IMF taking a playing a role in supporting developing economies, making sure money's available, even restructuring debts. And I mean, none of that has happened as far as I know, or has it? No, I mean, I think the SDR allocation, the hope was that the excess SDR allocations to the developed world 
could simply be donated, in effect, to the lower-income developing countries to expand their fiscal space to respond. And I think that's in pro- my impression is that's in process, but it hasn't really happened. That yes, all of those things are kind of in play, but I think the urgent thing right now. By the way, I mean, there's one other important point. You know, pe- people have done estimates of the sort of total cost of sort of vaccinating vaccinating the world, right? I mean, you know, if you just get on with it, and even stretching. I mean, even at the kind of upper end, you know, a number like a hundred billion dollars seems to be reasonable. And lots of estimates are below that. I mean, that is trivial <laughs> compared to the cost of not getting the job done and variants developing in unvaccinated populations and so on. So this really is an example of, it's not just international cooperation, it's it's really getting a, a, a very important issue with a, a big component of self-interest sort of up to the top of the agenda in terms of priorities. And I mean, in terms of um, the risk to the economy, I mean, you were fairly optimistic about the global recovery, maybe even a couple of months ago. Um, You know, the vaccine was rolling out. I guess we had hope that the vaccine would also get to developing economies. We've also seen this sort of fragility of supply chains. And you are much more pessimistic. I mean, I think one part of it is is the sort of nationalism or you could even say selfishness or inertia or whatever of um, in terms of the actual pandemic. But let, let's look at supply chains because it's very intriguing. We, we see a boat stuck in the Suez Canal. We see a, a port in Shenzhen closed because of a COVID outbreak. But is there something more happening? Because when you look at the uh, way that governments have reacted over the vaccine. I mean, you know, let's bring manufacturing home. Let's make our own stuff. We can't rely on anybody else. Do you think there's a chance that this might become, it is more fundamental than just a crisis response to a pandemic? Is something else going on that will affect the course of globalization? Well, I think they may, Janet, I think there may very well be the thing that on the global supply chains, the, the thing that's, I, I have to say, this is not something that's well understood, meaning I don't think there's adequate research that would enable anybody, including me, to make definitive statements about the origin. But but it's clear that the global supply chains are sort of clogged up and congested, and it looks like they're going to be that way for a much longer period of time than anybody expected. So I think that the kind of implicit assumption perhaps that many of us made is that well they were kind of knocked on their heels like everything else but you know when the global economy came back and demand surged in 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 various economies in a few sectors you know the supply chains would you know they were elastic they'd respond and it's clear they're not you know you can't have 24 months of semiconductor backlog you know an automobile industry shutting down uh, and so on and not think that something fundamental may have changed. Now, having said that, you know, I think at this point we're sort of guessing. There's probably risk aversion and changes in, you know, things like inventories, you know, that have implications for where risk, you know, lies in global supply chain. So a bunch of more conservative behavior would probably give you a, a, a sort of push you in the direction that we're actually observing. It, you know, similarly. You know, these things, the global supply chains are highly decentralized, right? 
I mean, they were operating under market forces, but we did delivered a tremendous shock to them. And so getting them back and running, you know, in a kind of coordinated way in, in a structure that has no sort of centralized coordinating capability other than market incentives, which, you know, are not trivial, but they're not, you know, they don't operate instantly. But when you when you look across the board, I mean, you've got semiconductors, containers, construction, you know, materials, you know, even the labor market is starting to look like it's behaving differently than than the way it used to in the pre-pandemic period. So bottom line is, I think we've got some homework and research to do. Interesting um, that you mentioned the labor market, because that was one of the big questions in my mind. I mean, we've obviously seen a big trend break, if you like. I mean, for years, we've been talking about working flexibly from home or in a hybrid way. Um, And that suddenly just became a reality. And it looks like everybody loves it. I mean, look at us. We're sitting, I'm sitting in my home in the West of England. You're sitting in your home in, in, in Italy and we're just chatting away. It's so easy. Um, So, so there's that side of that. Um, I mean, do you think that this way of working will persist? And what are the implications of it, the broader economic implications of that? I think parts of it will persist. Maybe, you know, maybe not a kind of revolutionary change, but I mean, I suppose it's important to be humble when you're when you're undergoing things that could be potentially large changes. It's really quite difficult to know with any degree of, you know, certainty what the end point will be. But it certainly looks like this has opened eyes, um, changed patterns, changed people's awareness and businesses as well of the art of the possible. Um, and then and then you have just more concrete factors. I mean, I, the, the latest writing I've seen on international travel, especially business travel, sort of sounds like it'll never come back the way it came. It was before. But that may be overdone a bit. But, you know, but I don't think People will fly around to have meetings when they can do it kind of this way going into the future. So, but, but I think, you know, at a, at a sort of slightly deeper level, I mean, the, the labor market is, at least in the United States, is starting to look like it really is different. You know, I mean, you know, it, there's lots of people quitting. There's lots of people deciding to retire early. There's lots of people moving, you know, it's, it's just, it feels like a big change. And what do you think is going on there? You know, at a kind of fundamental level, I think, you know, it may, may, you know, people's priorities sometimes shift, you know, in the context of a big shock. I mean, these are driven by values, but they're, you know, they, they kind of maybe say, gee, there's more important things in life than, you know, running on the treadmill in, uh, a major financial center. I mean, I don't know. You have a much better sense of what's going on in London, but than I do. But uh, and this has gone on long enough that you know. I mean, now the major players in New York, and not all of them, but a, f- a fair number of them, are saying, "Well, the full opening, meaning whatever version of it we're going to get, will come in at earliest in the early part of 2022." So we've been at this for a long time. Yeah, I think people are are um, asking fundamental questions about, you know, sort of where do they want to live? How do they want to live? You know, lifestyle. 
Yeah, I think it's been a revelation um, that being at home is kind of fun and you see your kids more and it's more flexible and it's perfectly doable. But I guess that, you know, the option to opt out and, um, you know, have a better work-life balance and and have some fun, <laughs> to put it mildly, depends on money and whether you have the, the means to um, take that choice. And um, which it was it was clear, I think, and MGI has written about this quite a lot, that the impact of the pandemic has been highly regressive. It's hit those on low incomes, it's hit women. And we've also at the same time seen apparently, uh, I mean, definitely a stepping up in digitization, very possibly a stepping up in the pace of automation. And so the threat to those on low skills um and they 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 they're the people you know who don't work in offices who can't work at home so easily i think so looking at all that and i know that you and all of us are very aware of rising inequality how do you see all that going i mean is, is are you even more worried now than you were before yeah i think so the proposition that the the pandemic was a negative shock from a distributional point of view is clearly right and well documented, both domestically in many economies, but also internationally, right? As you go through the income spectrum, you know, it gets worse <laughs> the further down you get. So I, that part's clear. Um, now, now you overlay the kind of digital uh, economy revolution, which is a, a, a phenomenon that was well underway before and we'll continue when when we're finished with this and the pandemic accelerated it so i think to the extent that that dis, that, that and and i think it's important element of the digital revolution to the extent that there are complex transitions to make during which there are distributional challenges they're now i think more severe because of the speed with which it's happening right, because of the acceleration that we just experienced. So if you think of it, I mean, I tend to think of it in terms of a transition, right? I mean, you, you, it's hard to know what the kind of endpoint equilibrium is, but we know that there's a huge amount of potential in this digital transformation of our economies, and it's going to kind of proceed. I mean, I don't think, see that if there's any way to stop it, but but there will be places where there's you know, big changes, you know, shrinking sectors, shrinking classes of employment and so on. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a tough and rocky period. Maybe all transition, big transitions like that are, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true of this one. So it's a real challenge. Yeah. I mean, we've talked for a long time and, and, and MGI talks about this a great deal about the imperative to reskill, but it's such a big thing and it takes a huge amount of effort and a lot of resources. And I I just often wonder whether anything like what is needed is actually going to transpire. I'm slightly hopeful about that. I mean, you know, on two fronts. One, one you know, if, if you look at the, the governments of the major economies, they are starting to sort of talk as if they, they have an important role in this, as they do in climate change. And secondly, you know, the business community, you know, under the multi-stakeholder model, under ESG, under, you know, sort of recognizing that, you know, they have an important role 
in this, these transitions, whether it's the energy transition or the digital transition, and you know, with a focus on people and helping them get through it. They, they, you know, I, I don't, I'm sure you can find pockets of sort of cynical engagement, but on the whole, it looks to me like the those two major chunks of the economy are are more engaged and and serious about it. I mean, if you look at it from a long point of view, we had adverse, at least in America, we had adverse distributional trends that go back at least 20 years, probably more. I think the Biden administration is serious about rectifying the the distributional aspects of growth patterns, or at least tackling it. Now, what they get through, you know, Congress is a different question, but I mean, if the test is, is anybody paying attention? I think the answer is yes. I love the fact that you came up with, I think the phrase was cynical engagement uh, by business in ESG. And I I, I was actually going to ask you, you know, in, in the context of climate change, which you mentioned, and I definitely wanted to talk to you about, whether the noise, the positive noise about doing something about climate change, doing something about uh, reskilling is cynical engagement or is there something big potentially going on where business knows that it has to respond, particularly in the case of climate change? Well, obviously, in in terms of reskilling, they need the skills. In terms of climate change, I think the evidence is stacking up that this is a huge risk to business and a huge risk to economies. I mean, MGI has written um, about climate risk um, extensively. Um, is it real what's going on in terms of the business response, do you think? If these risks are real, then we're going to see asset prices change depending on their exposure to risk, you know, insurance Systems are going to prove woefully inadequate, but they're they're real. They're important kind of prices, and you know. And in addition, you know, for businesses that have, you know, employees and customers who care, they can't just ignore them, right? I mean, in some sense, there's an identification problem. It's hard to know if you're all going in the same direction. But the bottom line is, I think, well, I'm I'm sure you and I could find examples of people who are just sort of going with the flow and hoping, you know, not to not have to do too much. I mean, the, I think the majority are moving swiftly in the um, the opposite direction. And, and it's getting serious. I mean, we um, have the IPCC now saying, OK, we're going to hit the 1.5 warming um, by 2040. We've got COP26 coming up. I mean, do you, do you agree that this is a sort of critical time? And, and what are you pessimistic or optimistic about uh, COP26? I'm sort of mildly pessimistic. You know, we've been talking about this for some time. The the UN, the, 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 the summer UN panel report basically said, you know what, we started 20 or more years too late. You know, you take a look around you. We had extreme climate events at higher frequency, greater severity, and globally in terms of scope, you know floods in China, floods in Turkey, you know, you name it, pick drought, pick fires, you know, floods in Germany. They basically said, you know, they didn't say I told you so, but they basically said, so the time to prevent that kind of thing is past. And so what you what you see around you now is the new climate normal for the next 20 years, period, right? That window's closed. Nevertheless, you know, if we do nothing, <laughs> 
then the second half of the century is going to be pretty unpleasant, to put it mildly. And there is a big job to do. So they, they were kind of walking a fine line. They were trying to be, you know, honest and saying, you know, mitigation to the point of preventing fairly dramatic climate change is not an option anymore. But there is an important agenda before us. And so then the question is, are, are we going to get there? Meaning, will will the COP26 produce significant increases in the ambition of the of the you know national level plans so that they come out vaguely resembling some kind of carbon budget that's consistent with holding at 1.5 degrees celsius so so i think you know paris was a big challenge this one is is a very very big challenge because the you know getting those commit at the margin getting those commitments in the aggregate to the point that they're consistent with some reasonable carbon budget carbon dioxide budget is is just it's it's risky scary potentially expensive and so on now there's a, a, the flip side of that is if everybody's on board you know there's some exciting opportunities in terms of growth patterns and even employment and so on so uh, it's a big challenge i, I mean we're all going to hold our breath i think and wait for Glasgow. So, when you look look at all that that we've discussed, the 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 uh, the fact that the vaccine hasn't gone to poorer countries yet, the fact that our supply chains are looking fragile and that might last, possibly more difficult than anything, looking at extreme weather events and that huge cloud on our horizon, can you think of a silver lining to this pandemic? I think one you've alluded to, which is that people are rethinking the way they live their lives. I think that is very welcome. But are there others in more, you know, hard-nosed economic terms that you would point to? Well, I think, you know, that this this is one we talked about briefly before, so I'll just mention it, but which is the digital revolution and some other stuff, a biomedical revolution, a potential you know, sort of breakthrough in the sense of technology, in the energy transition, all of these things are A, exciting, and B, could create, you know, in the short, medium, and long run, you know, higher growth, higher prosperity, actually more inclusive growth patterns, at least in some dimensions. Because, you know, one of the, one of the implications of, you know, we, we all live in a, a developed economy, so we have sort of offline and online options, right? But in lots of places in the world, but you know, until, at least until they, you know, they the growth engines bring them up in the direction of income levels that we, that we're used to, or even high middle income levels, as in China and a number of other countries, the offline options are extremely limited, right? Healthcare you know, education, access to libraries. I mean, all of this has been known ever since we kind of started the digital revolution or the, we got the internet and the World Wide Web. Now, I think with the with assuming it can be spread globally, I think the inclusive growth patterns are, are pretty exciting, whether it's e-commerce or the delivery of healthcare, you know, remotely, primary care particularly, and so on. So I think if we can see past the sort of immediate future, the thing that made me pessimistic recently is how how much 
diminished the immediate like two year, three year time horizon sort of growth patterns look because of these headwinds that you just mentioned, you know, climate change, clogged supply chains, you know, vaccine problems and an extended pandemic and 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 so on. And the one thing we haven't talked about, which is there's a, you know, we have to deal with this issue of inflation. I don't think there's any question that we're going to, we're going to get, <laughs> we've already had it. Price rises, the, the, the uh, partly because of clogged up supply chains and a bunch of other stuff. But it's the, the significant question that's being debated is whether that will embed higher inflation and inflationary expectations into these economies. And I, I think that one's unsettled. And there is a wide range of opinion on that. But if we do get significant inflation and it looks persistent, then the, cent- the major central banks are going to have to clamp down on it. And that's another headwind, at least in the kind of short to medium term. And, and um, in, in MGI's recent study on productivity, I mean, we said, yes, there's a productivity potential from digitization and all the technological change, but there's also structural problems with demand. So if you have a situation where you have Beyond this big burst of demand that we've we've been seeing the bounce after the pandemic, um, could you have inflation and weak demand, which is the disaster that we all want to avoid? It's less likely, I think, you know, that we could that we would have both. That is, that we'd have an inflation engine running, you know, that was kind of separated from demand supply imbalances. Interesting. Well, listen, Mike, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much for talking to us. We've covered a a very broad range of topics, but that's the kind of economist you are. So thank you very much. And we're very, very grateful. Thank you, Janet. It was a a great pleasure. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I hope I see you in the near future. Thank you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.